Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Earlier in the week, I had an opportunity to speak off air with Mr. Mike McNatty. He's the president and CEO of the National Airline Council of Canada. And the realities and the immense challenges facing the airline industry in this country are what you need to know about. The airline industry is a tremendous contributor to the national economy. It really is. And one thing that Mr. McNanny said to me really struck. I mean, everything he said to me struck. But this one is just reverberating. The operational recovery of the Canadian airline industry, when it eventually arrives, will be the largest mobilization of aviation since World War II. Mike McNanny joins me, President, CEO of the National Airline Council of Canada. Mike, thank you very much for the time, and we need to know more about the contributions of the airline industry to our economy and where the industry is today. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start with um, the importance of the airline sector to the greater economy. Talk to us about that. Well, commercial aviation is uh, is absolutely critical infrastructure of a modern economy. If you, if you look at my members, so Air Canada, Air Transat, Jazz, and, and WestJet, up until the end of 2019, they carried over 80 million passengers uh, across the country and around the world, and of course inbound from around the world to Canada, and directly employed over 60,000 60, people uh, and represented an, an impact at a further 630 plus thousand jobs across the overall transport and tourism sector. So it's, it's a very critical component of, of a modern economy. And of course, we touch every aspect of the economy and every region of the country. And what we are seeing now with the devastation of the sector over the past 10 years, excuse me, 10 months, we are losing connectivity and service to communities across Canada at a rate that is really threatening to unwind the billions of dollars in investment that has been made over the past decade and that has supported these hundreds of thousands of jobs and driven that level of, of connectivity and service that in turn has supported economic growth and economic activity in, in every region uh, of the country. All of that now is under duress and threat. And, and the, the percentage, the amount of money um, that has been lost by the industry is is massive. So, and there's the international component as well, because, you know, a lot of people think airlines is waiting at the gate, uh, struggling to get into the plane, maybe putting your stuff in the overhead bin. Uh, this, is, this is massive. What in the way of sectoral support um, is the industry asking for? So there's a few things. Uh, we're looking for, as most basic, we're looking for liquidity. So you're looking for loans, you're looking for loan guarantees. And it's not just uh, for airlines. We also have to have, as, as part of a broad sectoral support approach, we have to be including airports uh, as well as third-party service providers such as Nav Canada, which 
oversee the air traffic control in Canada. They're, they're, they're obviously a critical component of safety. So we have to we have to look writ large for sectoral support. And we are one of the few countries now in the world that has not uh, brought in a targeted sectoral support program for aviation and, and aviation workers. The U.S. Congress uh, right now is preparing a third uh, support response for for its industry. So we are very much uh, very much an outlier. Uh, and you have seen countries around the world have come forth with support, not because they're particularly enamored with, with aircraft and, and runways. It's because of the critical role that aviation is going to have to play in their overall economic recovery. And right now, we are, we are very much an outlier on that, uh, on that front. Let me ask you about uh, operational recovery. And I mentioned this in my introduction. What's involved? And, and I'll repeat again. You said to me, and, and this is what I'm focusing on. I mean, this is just stuck in, stuck in my brain. It will be the largest mobilization of aviation since World War II. And that's assuming things go as we would like to see them go. Yes, it, it is going to be a massive exercise. And we've never, you know, the reality is we've never done this before. We have never shut down commercial aviation for a protracted period of time. And if you look at, at the numbers, they are, you know, they're startling. We, we have, you have seen both domestically and internationally, capacity has been reduced by approximately 90%. And that has been the case now for the past uh, seven, six or seven months. You have seen tens of thousands of aviation employees have lost their jobs uh, or been furloughed. Bringing all of that capacity back online, it's not going to occur rapidly. Uh, and, and that's something we need to keep in mind when, just in terms of my comments a few moments ago about sectoral support. Other industries are going to be able to bring back capacity and employees online much more rapidly than we can. So we have tens of thousands who have been laid off or furloughed. Bringing those folks back online, they are going to have to get current again on their training qualifications. It, it, as you would fully expect in aviation, we are a highly regulated sector in terms of employee training and skills. And Transport Canada requires regular recurrent training and testing. So whether you're, you're pilots or flight attendants or aircraft maintenance engineers or flight dispatchers, ground handlers, etc. And not only do you have the training component and making sure those people are then current, you have many of those, those groups that I just mentioned, in fact, almost all of them, uh, require special security clearance. It's called a, a rake card, a restricted area area identity card. That requires security checks that have to run through the federal government to make sure then you can have access to areas at the airport, which obviously are, are, are sensitive areas for operations. So we're going to have to work through that, and we're also going to have to work through billions of dollars of aircraft that are parked and buttoned up all across the country, and, and in fact, North America and elsewhere. You're going to have to safely bring that capacity back online. And overall, what you're looking at is... The, the, these are all projections, of course, but the, the, the general sense amongst the industry is that it's going to take us about three to four years to get back to the level of lift and capacity that existed at the beginning of 2020. And by extension, that, that our, the Canadian economy at that time, the amount of lift that the Canadian economy was then predicated on and supported by. So that it's, it's a multi-year process, and it's going to be a, a, a very convoluted and, and difficult one. Yeah, and you pointed out, again, in uh, the, the previous answer several times, that we're the outlier because other countries are doing a great deal or significantly more than we are in Canada to support the air, their airline industries. And if we run into um, more difficulties, Mike, if uh, airlines find it, let's say this were to go on for another six, eight, ten, who knows how many months, and uh, the challenges financially would uh, would uh, multiply, and if airlines uh, were not, let's hope it doesn't happen, pray it doesn't happen, but if Canadian airlines would have trouble uh, surviving, 
there would be uh, competitors, international competitors would be very happy because they'd be more than happy to fill the slots. They, they would be. And one of the more frustrating aspects of, of the current situation for us as, as Canadian operators is that we are now losing market share to foreign carriers who are receiving support and have received support over the past several months. The, the initial support packages, by the way, uh, from, from foreign countries, foreign governments started around May or June of last year. So we are losing market share now on international routes and international capacity to foreign operators who are being supported by their governments. The reality in aviation is that once you, once you start to lose market share, it is awfully darn hard to get that back. And we should be under no illusions that when recovery starts, and of course, we all we all have hope that recovery is, is in the future for us. When a recovery does begin, there is going to be tremendous competition between countries for investment and the jobs that go with that investment, both from a travel perspective, a tour perspective, but just your overall broad, broad economy as well. There's going to be tremendous competition between countries uh, to, to drive their own recovery uh, capabilities. And the countries that that provide liquidity support for their aviation sector, the countries that have a true recovery strategy that is tied to, to testing and is tied to a science-based approach to testing and quarantine, those are the countries that are going to be by far the best position to bring back the jobs, to support economic recovery overall, and compete and take market share from those countries that do not do those things very well. It is very clear, obviously, which category Canada has to fall into uh, if we're actually going to have a sustainable recovery. This boggles the mind. Tax increase at this time? What happened? <laughs> uh, yes, we we did uh, back in September. So NAV Canada, which is the air navigation service provider, and it, it is created out of federal statute. Basically, it's air traffic control. Uh, of course, their revenue has dropped precipitously. They gain their revenue based on aircraft movements. Of course, with all the capacity and cancellations and removal of service, their revenue stream has dropped precipitously as well. So they had uh, sought assistance from the federal government, and this is all in the public realm. They put out uh, public statements to this effect. They had sought federal assistance uh, in order to meet their projected budget deficits. Uh, the government decided not to provide that assistance. So as of uh, September, we had a 29.5% uh, increase in the navigational fees that are charged to air carriers. The the reality of this, of course, is, is that only actually represents about a third of the projected budget shortfall they are ultimately going to face. So there is there is greater challenges waiting out there. And you, of course, have also seen over the past few months uh, our airport colleagues, as they too, of course, are experiencing the same drop in revenue. They have now uh, had to start to increase their their uh, aeronautical charges, which is the fees that we pay directly to the airport, as well as their airport uh, improvement fees, which you would see typically on your on your plane ticket and the, and the customer would see uh, now in, in a pandemic and 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 in the and the chaos the economic chaos created by the pandemic it's in nobody's playbook to increase taxes but that is what has been occurring and again that brings us back to uh, this overall need then for sectoral sectoral uh, support response so would you then uh, provide us an assessment of the federal government's actions and performance so far as far as providing support and understanding the need for support for the airline uh, industry, well, in terms of in terms of actually bringing forth uh, sectoral, 
the, the, the discussions with the government are, are ongoing. They have publicly commented on those and started back up, uh, I believe, uh, shortly after November. Uh, from our perspective, uh, we, we need to get to a conclusion on this uh, quickly. Uh, there were statements made earlier in the pandemic uh, around support that did not materialize. What has transpired since then, the numbers do speak for themselves in terms of the additional tens of thousands that have been let go within the sector, and of course the ongoing cancellations of service. In addition to that liquidity response, though, we do have the need for the development of a very strong testing strategy, which we have been proposing for months, and in conjunction with our airport partners in Toronto and Vancouver and Calgary, we've undertaken a series of pilot testing programs and provided all the testing data to both federal and provincial health authorities. We need a very clear testing strategy that's tied to quarantine levels that utilizes rapid antigen, not just uh, PCR tests, but involves rapid antigen. These are the steps you you have seen in other jurisdictions. We need to get our act together on that plan so that we can actually then enable a safe restart. So there's really two broad components to it. There's the, the, there's the liquidity piece, and then there's this next piece in terms of recovery. And what we need now is for the government to engage with us, airports and airlines, and how we develop that recovery piece. Th- those are going to be uh, those are going to be absolutely critical components. And if we don't if we don't get that right, then what we are going to do is we are going to ensure that the economic impact of the pandemic and the economic chaos and destruction of the pandemic is going to continue long after the the public health crisis itself has been adequately addressed. Mm -hmm. We have about a minute. You you mentioned PCRs. What about the quarantines? So on the quarantines, what we would like to see there, and again, this does look at other jurisdictions, what, what, what you now see with the testing that's been announced and the quarantine measures, those are steps the government has concluded it needs to take right now. That is obviously not a long-term strategy for safe reopening and restart of travel and travel and tourism. What we want to see is you start to factor in their rapid antigen tests, and then you can move away from the 14 days, and you can start to move to a 10-day or a 7-day. That is based on your testing results. And again, that's what you, you do see in other jurisdictions. And it is it is the only way that we can take a science-based and data-based approach to this and enable a safe restart overall. Uh, just remind us in the seconds we have left how many jobs are at stake and how many jobs have been lost. So in total, uh, over 50% of the the workforce that existed as we entered 2020 uh, amongst my members has now uh, been lost. So uh, that uh, that's about 35,000 to 40,000 jobs uh, direct. You have a broader number of over 630,000 to 660 odd thousand jobs across the overall travel and tourism economy that are directly impacted by air access, air lift, and capacity. And then, of course, you also have the broader aerospace sector because we, of course, buy products that are manufactured in Canada from an aviation perspective, and the and the knockdown impact on them as well. So it is it is a, a broad cascading impact. Uh, every job in every sector is important, obviously, but within aviation, we do touch in one form or other, every aspect of the economy in every region of the country, in cities large and small. And that is why it is so critical we get this right. It is always a very controversial issue when someone who has driven under the influence and driven drunk and killed a human being or more than one goes to prison for a very short period of time when compared to a conviction for second or first degree murder. And uh, many family members of victims of drunk drivers have been on this program 
and have spoken very directly about expecting more significant punishment and uh, and really driving home, no pun intended, the message that if you drive drunk and if you kill, there are consequences that will affect you for life. Sherry Arsenault's son and two friends were killed by a drunk driver whose speed exceeded 200 kilometers an hour. Sherry's from Alberta. She has fought for more meaningful prison sentences for drivers who kill than drive drunk. And uh, she's also appeared before Parliament. She joins us on the Roy Green Show. Sherry, I, I wish I didn't have to call you and ask you to be on the show, but I know that you want to share your message and share the expectation of families of, who lost their loved ones to drunk drivers. What's most concerning to you, Sherry, about Mr. Mutso well, receiving parole? Thank you so much, Roy. Uh, you know, what I still can't figure out, and I've studied it and I've looked at it from every which way, is first off, our justice system. Case law has literally not changed one iota in three to four decades. And then, you know, a judge will give a sentence, which is, like I said, has not changed in, in decades. And the judge gives the sentence, and then victims have to deal with the parole board who takes an eight-year, or, or in uh, Marco Muzio's case, a 10-year sentence and turns it into, at most, a four-year sentence. And that's a full parole. I mean, he's been on day parole for quite some time now. Day parole is pretty much what everybody in Canada that's uh, following COVID rules is doing. Uh, it's not a big deal to be on day or and full parole is is not much uh, different than being free 100%. So the problem lies with our justice system and then the legislated uh, our legislation when it comes to parole. The parole board uh, literally cuts sentences into one sixth, one third for these kind of crimes and. Impaired driving causing death or serious injury is perceived by our government as an accident, an unfortunate accident, and, and that's what uh, I'll never understand. You have engaged the federal government and appeared before parliamentary committees. Uh, I know you're dismayed at uh, the UCP in Alberta decriminalizing impaired driving. Do you have a sense, I mean, it's more than a sense, do you believe that the legislative side of things either doesn't care enough, has an attitude of there, but for the grace of God, go I, or that victims don't matter that much? Well, I think it's a mixture of everything. I, I mean, I don't think the victims, the remaining people, care a whole lot to to um, to our government. They may tell you we do, but we don't. We we. We have little to zero rights compared to an offender. They have, I, I, it would take us an hour to, for me to tell you all their rights. But um, I do perceive it in this day and age, instead of moving forward, we are going backwards. Like you said, the decriminalization of impaired driving is going backwards. That's essentially saying... It's a small crime. It's like a, a parking ticket. It's like a speeding ticket. If you hurt someone, don't worry, we'll go hard on you. But, you know, it's 
it's a crime that has been going on for so long and everybody recognizes it and nobody can tell me in 2021 that they know it's not illegal to drive impaired. But yet it's treated like, oh, whoops, it's a boo-boo. It's, and meanwhile, there's three to four mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers that, you know, we're, we're devastated. We're, we're living without a child, a loved one. So, uh, you know, I, I beat my head against the wall about it and, and I'm trying to find someone who will be my rock star and, and look at this seriously because I do not believe Canada takes this crime seriously at all. You and I have talked off the air about mm-hmm. the reality of victims' impact statements. Oh, yeah. And what happens with the victims' impact statements, and it further marginalizes you, Sherry, and the victims' impact statements, the way they're managed, the way their victims are instructed on how they must write their victims' impact statement, just marginalizes the victim. It does. We're instructed on what we can say. I mean, how can anybody tell me what my impact is? I have to be the one to express that. But they tell you what you can write about. They give you a timeline when it has to be submitted. And it's usually two to three months before an offender's parole hearing where they get to now study and analyze it, share it with their family and friends, whatever they want. They get to prepare for it. Whereas there's no preparation at all when it comes to writing one. Every day is a different day when you're a victim. You know, you, you know, some days it's hard to put one foot in front of the other, and other days not so bad. But uh, yeah, even doing a victim impact statement, you are revictimized. But yet, that's all you have. That's all you have to be able to express to the offender how you feel or what they have done to you or your life. I'm not sure if I remember this correctly, but did the individual who killed your son, did he ever apologize? No. Uh, I mean, we were, that was one of the main things with us. And, and after three parole hearings, I think they got the gist. Has nobody in this room not realized he doesn't know their names? He's never apologized. In fact, he somewhat blamed them. They shouldn't have been there. You know, because they, they they glossed over that. And, and, you know, here's something that I really want the public to know. When I read over Marco Muzio's uh, parole board decision, I've read it from top to bottom. It is almost identical, word for word. We're talking copy and paste, that of the parole board decision on my end. So I don't even know how much thought process goes into these parole decisions. I think they're decided the day they enter into jail when they're getting out. Because it's literally almost word for word, copy and paste. So, you know, the whole system, and that that alone re-victimizes me. You know, that they're not even actually looking at it case by case and making their decisions collectively. it's, It's a... You know, it's it's almost like uh, they know what they're going to do before it's even done. Sherry, what people don't realize is the next person can be anybody. Well, that's just it. Uh, when it comes to impaired drivers, they don't discriminate. And uh, 
you know, and that's the thing. It, it, it could be any time of the day or night, any day of the week. It doesn't always just happen on Friday, Saturday nights. It happens all the time, and it happens close to 200 times a day just in Canada where someone is, you know, hurt, like seriously hurt. And, you know, even even with the provinces starting to decriminalize this crime, it's because there's so many impaired drivers out there, they feel it's costing too much in court. So instead of putting money into our court systems, they figure let's just take court out of the equation and decriminalize it. Just let's give them an administrative fine. And to me, that's giving everybody one freebie. But how do you know which one is not the one that they're going to kill someone or themselves for that matter? You know, I'm sorry even that, drunk I'm, drivers have mothers, you know, I yeah. have to say I'm that. I'm sorry that I have to keep calling you. Oh, you know, Roy, for every victim out there, when we have a voice like yours that can help us express how we feel and what really goes on, that, that believe me, victims take so much solace that there's, uh, there's an outlet like, like your voice to help us with this. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Business Council of Canada sent a letter to the Prime Minister and provincial and territorial leaders this week calling for a national vaccination and COVID testing regimen in which Canada's biggest companies would fully engage. The letter was signed by Goldie Hyder, President, CEO of the Business Council of Canada, and Donald R. Lindsay, President, CEO of Tech Resources Limited. Mr. Hyder joins us on the program. Uh, you can go to businesscouncil.ca again, and Partnership Can Save Lives, preserve jobs and rebuild our economy is the heading for the, the letter for us. Goldie, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. And what is the state of our economy, our, our national Canadian economy? And during the COVID pandemic, is Canada, is our federal and provincial uh, reality doing what is necessary to reinvigorate the economy, COVID-19 notwithstanding? Just a general question first. Well, obviously, the state's not well when you see, you know, the unemployment numbers that were forecast to be 40,000 in a month turn out to be 200,000. So it's quite clear that uh, COVID has taken its toll uh, on our economy. And it's uh, p- perhaps because we may have underestimated how long this thing was going to be with us. And, and here we still are, and it looks like there's still a ways to go, which is part of why we put out the letter that you referenced. And I do encourage your listeners to take a look. It's really just an offer to help, uh, to reach out to government, to work in partnership to provide the capacity and capabilities and the infrastructure, frankly, that that the corporate sector has 
to be able to open clinics, to be able to use our pharmacies uh, to execute the vaccine program, to uh, store the vaccine, to transport the vaccine, to provide leadership and communications to Canadians on the importance of the vaccine, uh, on the data management and the tracking and all the innovation that's gone into keeping um, you know, to try and get our economy back on track. That was the purpose uh, of our letter, and we're, and we're optimistic that it's being taken up. The subject of rapid testing has certainly been discussed more in the last 24 to 36 hours at all levels of government than I've seen in the last, uh, you know, 46 months. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge logistical offer by Canada's uh, business community, larger business community, an offer to the federal government and the provincial government where it's particularly needed. Yeah, no question. And, and, and you know, I think um, we are where we are. We can always look back and say we should have, could have, would have. But we are where we are. And what we're saying now is uh, it's quite clear that the vaccine in and of itself is not necessarily a cure, that it's going to take time for it to be fully deployed. And we're chasing these variants all over the place. Uh, now, most recent one apparently has arrived in B.C. So we're, we're, we're clearly chasing this thing. And one of the ways to get ahead of it is the introduction of rapid testing. I mean, you've had me on before, and my, my, uh, my partner in crime, Isaac Bogosh, uh, Dr. Bogosh and I both written about this many times, saying this is a, a critical tool. It's, um, it's an element of helping people bridge to the other side of this thing. And to get these rapid tests out uh, to, to particularly high-risk areas, right? I mean, we know how the virus is behaving. We know where it's striking. We know some of the characteristics um, of the of the um, of the um, uh, jobs that are that are targeted, or the employee the employer locations that are targeted in terms of where there's high degree of concentration. Let's use tests to prevent the spread, and particularly for those that are symptomatic or asymptomatic, don't even know they're carrying this around. If we can get a rapid test in place and, and have that widely deployed across this country at a scale that will allow us to to, to chase this thing much more effectively, I think. The issue you raised, the economy, will then have a chance to restart because otherwise we just keep doing it. I mean, I've been on your show a dozen times, it feels like, but all I ever mm-hmm. talk about is playing whack-a-mole with, the, with this virus. It's not working. Something has to give, and we think rapid testing is a key component of that. Yeah, and, and there's and a responsible how, vaccine rollout. And Goldie, how quickly can the, the national business community, the large businesses, the people that you represent, how quickly can they get engage? Almost immediately? Almost immediately. I mean, and literally, I think if this, uh, if we're able to get the signal to help with the uh, execution on the vaccines and the uh, execution on the rapid testing, I think you would see a size and scale and an impact that's measurable, uh, you know, pretty darn quick uh, because of the, the, natu- the national reach and the capacity to execute without, you know, too much process, if you will. Like, let's just get things done, as opposed to all the reasons we can't get things done. Yeah, there's a real issue here. I mean, obviously, but we're we're lagging badly behind the U.S. and the U.K., for example. We're somewhere num- near number 30 in the world as far as vaccinations per 100,000 population is concerned. So the vaccination rollout is huge. But again, as you said, the testing issue is another one that really, I don't think we focus nearly enough on that. No, and I think it's going to be the lesson of COVID for us is for whatever reason, and I think partly because with the greatest of respect to our public health officials, you know, there's a diverse points of view about the, about the effectiveness of these tests and if they're not PCR versus, you know, and so my sense is, is that we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. We simply cannot play Russian roulette with our economy. That's what we're doing as we, as we chase this thing. We've got to figure out a way to contain the spread while restarting our economy responsibly. And rapid testing is going to be a, an extremely critical component of that. And let me just say on the vaccine front, look, one way or the other, I think all Canadians who need a vaccine are going to get vaccinated in 2021 and probably be in or about the deadlines that we're hearing around September, October. 
So I'm less concerned about whether I get it in June or July. All I know is in that interim, Canadians have to make sure that we're not spreading this thing even further. So our own behaviors, our own responsibility and compliance is key to this. But so too is that is this is this rapid testing component, uh, which I think has been grossly underutilized. With an eye, with a very serious eye, with a very serious dedication to the economy of this country, and keeping in mind that without our economy, well, we're sunk. Well, we, we look. We, it's a health emergency, but it's also created an economic emergency, yes, and then there's all these unknown factors around the mental health, and you know, um, the the bankruptcies, all of these things that are luring out there. Uh, I think we've got to figure out a way to connect these two dots. We can't do what we've been doing. It hasn't been working. We're just going up and down, up and down, up and down. Let's deploy the uh, availability of the private sector and the capacity of the private sector, marry it to the innovation of the rapid testing and all of these things which are you know, going to be tools to help us with our mental health, our, our, our emotional health, our physical health, but also right. our economic health. Goldie, it's always good talking to you. Thank you so much. The Business Council of Canada, and it's businesscouncil.ca. You can find the letter, Partnership Can Save Lives, Preserve Jobs, and Rebuild Our Economy, as our National Business uh, Council um, communicates with the Prime Minister and the Premiers and offers their assistance. Morneau Chappelle's Canadian Financial Wellbeing Index Report. This is fascinating. For January of this year, the score is minus 2.8. So what does this mean? Remember, Canadian Financial Wellbeing Index Report. What does it mean? And where are the losses and the gains for Canadians' financial well-being during the pandemic? I found this really, really interesting material. And uh, joining us on the program is uh, Paula Allen, Senior Vice President of Research and Total Well-Being at Morneau Chappelle. Ms. Allen was a guest of ours a few weeks ago. We were talking about the health index. Ms. Allen, thank you very much for, for taking the time. And this is the inaugural financial well-being index for Morneau Chappelle, I understand. What are you measuring, and what are you measuring the results you observed against? Well, first of all, we chose to develop and to publish the financial well-being index because it is so important to overall well-being, including mental well-being, uh, quality of life, you know, basically everything that we experience. And what we are measuring, we're taking a benchmark. We looked at the average of, of a number of different measures, which I'll speak about in a moment, between uh, 2017 and 19. And we had that as basically our benchmark period. Any score that is negative means that we've actually declined in our financial well-being as working Canadians. Any positive score says that we have been uh, we have improved. And very unfortunately, the, the evidence is showing that we have declined in our well-being as a group. Yeah, and I don't think that that's terribly surprising, is it, at minus 2.8? But, but it's not f- even across the board. For women, as I read your report, the financial well-being score is significantly more challenging than it is for men. Could you speak to that, please, and, and break down the most important factors? Yeah, and this, this is very important. And, and again, we want to take these, these, uh, these measures as calls to action across all of our different subscales. Uh, those who identify as females were faring worse. So basically financial knowledge, the actions that people are taking in terms of managing money so it, it supports them in the long term, emergency savings, um, uh, people's perception uh, of their financial well-being, like how much anxiety do they have about finances? You, you saw women faring worse, and there's a number of reasons for this. 
Number one, we still actually have a, a bit of disparity in terms of job and income between men and women. We saw this very, very starkly during the pandemic when so many uh, uh, predominantly female jobs were lost in arts, in uh, service, in retail, and generally speaking, they were, they were on the lower end of the pay spectrum. So lower pay to begin with and more vulnerable as a result of the pandemic as well. Uh, but the other part of this is that, you know, really, I think starting from, you know, children, from girls, you know, we're, we're developing a, a sort of um, a perception around how we should approach our finances as women that might not be all that helpful. So investing in financial knowledge, making sure that we have control of an, an understanding of our finances, again, very unfortunately, Many people sort of either are in or anticipate pair bonds where the male partner would, would invest a little bit more in terms of financial management, and that is hurting women. Yeah, perception does become reality, and mm-hmm. the perception is Canadians, or perception Canadians have, of their financial well-being is impacting our overall well-being, isn't it? And that's not, that's not good. That is not good at all. It causes uh, stress. Uh, in previous research, we, we found that finance is the number one stressor, isolation being next and concern about others in your family being the third. Um, we also find that it impacts even work productivity. So concern about your financial situation is currently, at this point in time, impacting 22% of working Canadians and reducing their ability to be productive at work. Ms. Allen, I thank you very much for joining us again. It's, uh, it's fascinating. It's important for us all to know where we are as far as our financial well-being is concerned and our mental health uh, and our, just our overall health uh, is concerned because they're all tied together, particularly at this time. Professor Madonna, this is just literally, as we used to say eons ago, hot off the presses. How do you interpret what happened today? You're exactly right. Well, let's start with the fact that the Democrats didn't have the vote going into uh, the trial in the Senate. I don't think there's any any doubt about that. They needed 17 uh, to get to the magic 67, assuming every Democrat, you know, would vote for uh, a conviction. And they, you know, they ended up uh, uh, 10 votes short of that uh, total the total conviction. They got 57 votes, seven Republicans. Uh, uh, voted uh, guilty, but that was not the 17 that they needed. They were 10 short of convicting former President Trump of uh, of the article of impeachment, as I indicated before. They got 57 yes, they needed 67. And this was a interesting trial. Uh, this was the fourth trial of an American president, Andrew Johnson, uh, back in the 1860s, one was the first one. Bill Clinton, of course, just recently in the 1990s was two. And Trump, this was the second impeachment of Donald J. Trump. He was impeached but not convicted in 2020. He was impeached but not convicted this year in 2021. And the trial, Roy, only lasted five days, five days. It was the shortest trial of any of the of the presidents that I mentioned earlier, Andrew Johnson's. I hope you're seated for this. Took three months. Did you hear what I just said? <laughs> three months. The most unbelievable that a trial could take that long. Correct? 
Well, absolutely. So, so now what's the upshot of this? Did, did the Democrats really think that in any way they might have the numbers for the conviction? Or was it an exercise where they knew they didn't have the numbers, Professor Madonna, but they were creating the dynamic that it would be highly, very, highly difficult for Mr. Trump to run again in 2024? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And you know what? It could be two parts. It could be both of them. I, I think many Democrats were convinced that they could move more Republicans than they ultimately moved, you know, to vote conviction. And so they made their case as though they were going to get conviction. And we can talk about the specifics of the case if you want. But they also were trying to present enough evidence to really damage uh, Trump's reputation uh, when Trump le- walked out of the White House after, on January 20, after his term ended, he said, I will be back. And it's entirely possible, given comments that he made, offhand comments and comments made by other folks around him, that he might not run as a Republican, but form a third party uh, known as the Patriot Party and take that route. Now, my judgment is if he were to take that route, he would badly divide the Republican Party. He still has a very strong base among Republican voters in the states, a very strong base. But here's but he has lost support among Republicans by about 10 or 15 points as this trial has after. Let me put it this way. After the events of January 6th. So I let me put to put this question to you. What is most significant and what is most interesting to you about the last well let's say the last five days well i'll tell you what it's it's the degree to which the democrats not only went after trump for january 6 you know the events that took place after the rally but they went through the history of trump's presidency talking about the language that he used particularly when they employed one word fight 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 and they went through and produced you know uh tapes and testimony you know not not testimony in person but testimony by the uh, arguments made by the house impeachment uh managers that donald trump in a sense invoked violence on any number of occasions so they went back through his entire uh, presidency they just didn't go to January 6th and what happened after the rally when uh, the mob broke into uh, the White House. I'm sorry, broke into the Capitol, as, as everybody knows. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, the degree to which they tried to use, quote, the pres- presidential history and relate that to the impeachment trial. I didn't think, by the way, when it started, I thought they most political analysts, me included, for what that's worth, I I never thought they were going to get the votes to convict. And so we're back to that point you made earlier. I think some Democrats believe they could get the votes, but at best weakening him in terms of future office seeking. So the final question then, Professor Madonna, is this one. Uh, And and it's a long way out to 2024. It's not that far out to the midterms, but it's a long way out to 2024. Uh, Does Donald Trump have, in your estimation, any chance of winning an election in 2024? I think it's going to be very difficult for him to be very candid. Now, remember, what we don't know yet is does President Biden 
who's 78 years old, the oldest president, uh, presidential candidate to be elected president? Does he run for a second term? The first of all, he's got to get through the first term. And what do voters think of that? And how's his standing with the electorate in America? And we, you know, we're going to have to wait to see how that plays out. I still think it's going to be very tough for him uh, to to run successfully for the president. But go back to what you said about the midterm elections in 2022. He could play a big role in the in the Republican primary battles for the House and the Senate. He could go. He could recruit candidates to run for the House and the Senate. He could get uh, go out and campaign for them, help them raise money. So there's. Right. Thing, other things that he can do, decide decide to run, you know, for the presidency in 2024. He says, I'll be back. The question is, in what fashion will he be back? Well, I just keep thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger, but what can I tell you? Uh, yeah, Professor McDonald, it's always good talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Perfect timing today. Oh, yeah. Hey, call anytime. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.